And some people hear me talk about that and they're like, whoa, could uh, I thought, to, can uh, you know what? Maybe no. And other people are like, yes, bring it on. Let's do this. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Welcome back to another episode. I am delighted to have with me today, Dr. Jolie Hamilton, who is the coach for couples who color outside the lines. Welcome to the podcast. Lovely to have you. Thanks so much for having me. It's a total pleasure to talk to somebody who is so grounded in themselves. So Mm -hmm. I'm excited. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really happy to be doing this episode because I think that there are a lot of couples where they have a pretty vanilla relationship. We'll go with marriage mm-hmm. and maybe both of them are actually open to more or want more, or would be excited about more expression of their sexuality connection with other kinds of people, but they have no idea how to get there. And it's a really scary conversation to even bring up with a spouse. So I have a lot of respect for what you do and your sort of breadth of experience of actually working with couples on this topic. Uh, So we're talking about creative monogamy and strategically opening up your marriage. So not blowing up your marriage. Very (laughs) important distinction. Strategically opening it up. So I'm curious if you can maybe share a bit about your own personal motivation for this work. I'm imagining you have a personal connection to that. And then the kinds of couples that come to you. I'm curious to hear more about that. That's a great place to start. Um, When I got into this work, it was because I did it the hard way. I did burn everything to the ground, blow everything up. Not because that's what I wanted, but because when I realized that I had this opening and I think of it now, I picture it as it was like my mind had this open window. And eventually that open window became, oh, actually that's a, like that's a that's a whole door. Oh, now it's a the door is open, people. The door is open. I did not take physical steps, but the door in my mind was open to the possibility of non-monogamy. And when I brought that to my partner, I did it in a way that was not sufficiently grounded. Um, It didn't offer us a real shot at making that work. And so, because I am who I am, (laughs) um, I learned my way out of it. And this was, so this started back in 2009 for me. um, And uh, since then, it's many psychology degrees, a sexuality certification, and a lot of lived experience. Because what I did was wind up leaving that marriage and entering a triad you can imagine that was complicated because that's another marriage now that's experiencing change. What I learned was that there isn't one way to do this, but that a lot of deep psychological principles and wonderfully expansive sexuality principles can help us do this better, but we need to know what they are. (laughs) And I wish I had had a guide back then. So that's my motivation. 
So, and if we just back up to that, that moment when you approached your then husband, you know, it, I think part of it is, it is a sensitive topic because what we don't want to say is, Hey, you're not enough for me. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, I think that's part of why it's really scary or hard to talk about is because we don't, we, we have some awareness that that's a thing they might feel. And so that's part of why it feels really scary. And so I'm curious, like what, what did you actually say? What was the the sort of like, maybe don't do it this way kind of thing? Yeah. So for me, it started with um, a combination of naivete and optimism. That's not where everybody starts, but for me, it started there. And I'll, I would say about half of the people who come through my door <laughs> show up that same way. It's this beautiful naivete. It's really glorious. It starts with the idea that love is love and more love is good. And wouldn't we all want more love? And who doesn't want to explore? And it's extraordinarily open and expansive. And it feels wonderful if you are feeling that. And not everyone in my marriage was feeling that. The trouble wasn't so much what I said, because what I said was actually nothing hurtful. I hopped into the shower. We were getting all soaked up and I was just glowing. We'd been out dancing with friends. And I'm like, I think I've got a real thing. I've got like a thing for Ken. I can't believe this, but I think I'm totally falling for him. Mic drop, right? Like, I know that that's a shocking sentence for most people to say in a monogamous marriage, but in the context of my life, um, I'd fallen in love with women friends over and over and over again. And it never turned into anything. And it was just a thing. It never occurred to me that it would be different for my husband because this was a guy, but it was, it was very challenging for him because he went right to the place you were mentioning. And this is where the other 50% show up in this imagination that if my partner wants more, I must not be enough. So that's how he received it. And then we were at a loss because we were standing like on separate islands trying to look at the same thing, but we just weren't seeing the same thing. We, I was seeing hope and he was seeing the demise of the one thing he counted on. I don't like that future for anyone. That's why I'm all about strategy and care and patience through this process. I think that's powerful what you just said about if my partner wants more, I might not be enough. And I think that there's a way that we we can understand that someone really loves our cooking, like they love our home cooked meals and our the way that we cook, and they might also want to go to restaurants. Like right. there's a way that we we understand the concept of my partner wants more of something and what I provide is also enough. Yep. But for some reason, when it comes to sex or connection, romantic connection, I think maybe in part because our culture is so constricted around this in a way that I don't think we are very mindful of, but it truly does kind of sell the Disney future for couples repeatedly from a very young age. We're sort of trained in 
vanilla monogamy world. Like this is what you do. You grow up, you meet one person, you get together, you have a family, you buy a house, you do the thing. We still think that way even in 2022. So it's, it's really hard to think outside of that. And so there's a, there's, it feels like it's a threat to the relationship, I think for a lot of folks. And I'm curious to hear, you know, as we sort of transition into um, your work, your work with couples, I'm curious to hear, is that a frequent archetype where one person within the marriage or relationship wants more and the other person is kind of like, not dragged kicking and screaming, but just a lot more reticent, a lot more like, I don't know about this. This feels kind of scary. You know, do you find that that's usually the case or is there sometimes both people are excited about it? Yeah. So there is a, there's a wide variety of ways people show up. And really I, what I've noticed is it's always about the moment in time they happen to show up in my office, right? My virtual office or my physical office, that moment in time might look completely different, just 24 hours apart. Because a phenomenon that is incredibly um, common is one person has the inspiration. So they carry the inspiration. I had the idea and then I introduced it. The other person then carries the, I'm coming to this. And often it's, I'm coming to this for you or because of you. And so this dynamic becomes really tense, right? And you, you said archetype and I'm like, I'm an archetypal psychologist, so I'm all over it. Um, this dynamic introduces a tension. And that tension is frequently felt as discord. But what we know about archetypes is they all have a polarization. And so I like to think of that tension between the two of them as actually the energy that could birth the third thing. This is Jung's transcendent function. This is where the third thing, and the third thing is not a person because we're not going to objectify a person. The third thing is some new way of relating that they could not experience in their current forms. So the tension is welcome in my space, but it's frequently not welcome for them. They're like, oh, and then what happens is often at some point in their journey, they flip the flip and the flip is very uncomfortable because now the person who was like, this would be fun. They often had that wide-eyed optimism. And then they're met with like, oh, maybe dating is hard or maybe making a relationship agreement is hard. Or wait, I have to grieve things and let go. Oh my God, I didn't think about this. Wait, I'm going to have to come out. So this all falls on them like glass shattering. Meanwhile, the other person who was maybe more reticent has now, if they decide, if they weren't poly under distress is what we call it, if they weren't kicking and screaming and they did agree, then usually what they start doing is doing the thought experiments, researching, reading, listening to a million podcasts, doing the things. And so they have actually built a structure for themselves where it makes sense. So now they actually feel more safe in some ways than the person who was just like, it'll be fun. And so now we're at the flip. So it depends when I meet them, where we find them. That is fascinating. I love that you have enough experience to see this as a pattern that has emerged. And I would imagine that, yeah, I, I think I've probably witnessed that in some of my friends of the, the flip and the, the one partner that was initially reluctant being like, Oh, this is actually really great. Yeah. (laughs) I really enjoy being, you know, accessing parts of myself that have been dormant for a while or getting to not be so 
kind of have blinders on, right? This is my partner. This is the only person I'm allowed to be attracted to. This is the only person I'm allowed to play with to like, oh, wow, I I can actually look at more and explore more. And so there's a, right, there's an opening there versus Mm -hmm. the, the other partner who's like, God, this is actually really hard you know, the, the conversations are hard. Like this is a lot more work than I was expecting. And so I I think I've witnessed that pattern, but it's great to hear that it's a little bit more universal. I don't think I've ever not seen it in some form. Sometimes it's very mild and it's just sort of an exchange of, oh, what dating is often easier for one person than another for a bunch of reasons, like the amount of extroversion you carry naturally, or because you happen to be like able to take great selfies of yourself, like something as simple as that can change the dating game for you or simply access to people. Some people are in jobs where they're frequently talking to people. Other people are stay-at-home parents. and They're like, uh, how do I meet anyone, right? So there are a million reasons why it might be more challenging. And so that dealing with that tension and how the flip happens is, is a really important step that I rarely hear talked about, but if we don't deal with it, what happens is that that inspiration that one per- partner was carrying, right? It's like, it becomes like a hot potato because now the other partner is like, like, oh, now I've got the hot potato. Oh, now I bear the responsibility for making sure that this feels good and it's safe and it's good and it's good and it's good. When really we have to learn how to flexibly and resiliently meet the inevitable challenges that are going to come up, I guarantee it. And to refrain from placing the the onus of this on our partner because we signed up. The very first pillar of opening in any way is informed consent, enthusiastic informed consent. Without that, what are we doing? Yeah, so take, take us through a little bit. So creative monogamy and strategically opening up. So when when couples come to you, let's say that a couple comes to you and they've not played with anyone else. Um, let's just take your example of she's excited about it. She, mm-hmm. she finds it exciting and there's a lot of possibility and he's a lot more reluctant. What kinds of conversations are you having with them to, to, to get to informed, enthusiastic consent? And do you ever work with couples where you sort of are like, you two are not aligned on this. This is actually not, yeah. it's not going to serve your relationship. Yeah. You know, I had a conversation just this week. That's exactly like that. Um, They've been wrestling. So the thing about my work is I'm not here to convert anyone. I do not believe that, you know, non-monogamy or polyamory is more evolved than monogamy. I believe that conscious relationships work and that they take effort because that's not what we were sold. The Disney version, it's not actually about monogamy. It's about unconsciousness. Literally look at the symbolism we get in it. It's about staying unconscious. So if we want to shift to consciousness, then the conversations we're going to have involve where are you right now in your own individuation path? Like what's going on for you psychologically? What's in your history? What do you need to unpack to be able to consent to this? And that often requires that that a couple, sometimes for the first time, acknowledge that they are not the same person that they have had incredibly different experiences throughout their life. And that in order to honor each other, they're going to have to get comfortable with the fact that they are really differentiated, sacred, autonomous others. And this phase can take time, but it 
but even that, like I have to consent just to the process of starting to release myself from the enmeshment and allow you to be other. And that's what happens when I, when I have to say to somebody, this doesn't feel like a fit for you right now, from my perspective, my, this is what I'm seeing. What I want to reflect to them then is that's not, that doesn't mean it can't ever be, but where you are right now, you need to do some individual work to allow yourself to come into your actual self. And from there, because people tend to think, oh, I, we just need better communication skills. That's not going to be enough if you're not grounded in yourself. Yeah. I'm wondering if you, when you are working with a couple in that stage, because what I'm hearing is a little bit of maybe they're codependent a bit. There's maybe some codependency. Do you work with them on the individuation part? You, you help with that? Yeah. So I think codependency is incredibly normal. It's, it's a completely normal reaction to uh, the traumas that we experience when we're children and to the, the patterning that we get. And then to the stories that we're told, like we are taught to be codependent. Now I'm really lucky because my parents were codependent by choice. My father even used that word. He taught me what codependence was and encouraged me to select it as my relationship choice. You can imagine <laughs> later, years later, when I was scratching my head through my psychology doctorate going, uh, dad, what was that all about? And the thing is for them, for my parents, they chose that. They liked it. They enjoyed it. Do I think it was, you know, a growth path? Nope, I don't. But they were happy in it. And the beautiful thing is because I was presented that in such a strong way, it was just so out there. We literally, I learned the word codependent when I was in third grade. Because of that, I knew I was codependent in my first relationship. And so I get to see couples with this sort of neutrality around codependence. Like, yeah, this is fine. You get to decide that and that's fine. I will support you in figuring out how to unpack this if that's what you want to do. And so that's where my work can pick up. People can start the strategic opening process and right from that spot. And that's actually why I use the term creative monogamy, because frequently couples do want to move toward a more open, expansive experience of life. And yet the habits that they have and the, the examples they have only, they keep them locked into one imagination. So creative monogamy is about getting really, really clear on all these different areas of your life and relationship that exist, and then intentionally selecting where you'll be exclusive and where you're going to be expansive and doing that by undertaking thought experiments, undertaking some somatic work because your body is going to need to get brought on board, <laughs> and then doing the actual relationship agreement process, which includes embodied experiments with the right to say, we experimented and this didn't work for me. I love that spirit of experimentation because I, I think that's another thing that our culture doesn't fully support is actually trying things out and knowing that they might not work and that's okay, that there wasn't something wrong. Nobody did something bad. Cause I think that our schooling, the way our schooling works is a very binary. Like you get the right answer or the wrong answer. You don't want to look stupid by saying the wrong thing. And so we don't have a lot of sort of spirit of 
growth mindset and experience of growth mindset, you know, in our bodies. But I like that. Um, and I just wanted to, to mention a few things about, I have a lot of friends that are in ethical non-monogamous relationships and, you know, I would love to talk about relationship agreements. One thing I just wanted to mention for, for folks is that if, you know, opening up doesn't need to mean we're going to go have sex with other people. It, it doesn't ever need to mean that you go all the way there. It definitely doesn't mean you do that at first. So for example, one of my non-monogamy friends would only go to play parties together. Mm-hmm. So they would go to the parties together and maybe they would play with other people at the party and people have all kinds of different agreements. This is, I, I would imagine part of what you work with folks on, but I just wanted to say for them, that was sort of like what they were the most comfortable with was they would go to parties together. They would maybe play with other people. They would maybe play with each other. Often they would play with other people. They got to know people. They had, they had, they were in a scene. They knew people. It was a, a group, you know, it was a community and, and then they would go home together. And that was their deal. And as they, as the years went on, they kind of graduated to like, okay, let's try solo dates and see how that feels for us. That created a lot more tension for them in their relationship. It was, it was scarier for, for one of them to like, no, this person's off on a solo date. And they kind of graduated to like, we're not going to do anything on the date, right? There's not going to be any sexual touch between us. We're just going on a date, coming back. And then they graduated to sort of beyond that, right? So for them, the the highest level of the video game, the most intense level of the video game was solo date and then spending the night with someone else. And mm-hmm. they had a lot of sort of like aftercare stuff around, like you come back, we cuddle, like we debrief together. They had a whole thing around it. But I think some people jump to, what is this going to look like? What's this going to mean? And it doesn't have to be, for example, solo dates right away. For some people, that's actually more comfortable. They're like, I don't know if I want to go to a play party. That sounds really scary. And what if there's sex that I see with other people? And so it depends on the couple. But I just wanted to say, you that's part of the process of this whole, the point of this whole process is to figure out what feels good and what doesn't. And sometimes you don't know until you try. Sometimes you don't know how it's going to feel until you try it. So we have to kind of, yeah, open up to the possibility of some things are going to be uncomfortable. And if you're on the same team, you're going to come back. It's not going to be, I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable. I I don't want you to suffer. That's not the point of this, but we are going to try some things out. And some of them might feel a little awkward. Yeah. Got to embrace the awkward. You gotta. I, I really appreciate that you've named this because there are a few different ways that people jump to conclusions about open relationships. And the first one is always, it's all about sex. It's not. (laughs) Open relationships are incredibly creative and can be customized. And one of my core beliefs is that relationships can and should be built by people in them for people in them. End of story. Now, that doesn't mean... (laughs) that sex will be off the table either. But I I think you're totally on the right page when you say like, yeah, we can't just assume. But you know, I have lots and lots of clients. In fact, right now I'm working with a group. um, And what came up in the group just a couple of weeks ago was that in this particular group, it wasn't the sex. Now, so this is is seven different um, couples or individuals who are coupled, but present just as an individual. Amongst all of them, sex was not 
not the top level of the video game. Top level of video game was my partner falls in love with someone else. And if you're aiming toward polyamory, which literally means many loves, then that would be a potential outcome, right? And realistically, hearts do what hearts do. Somebody falling in love isn't really, it's not in our control. And so coming to terms with, okay, what if my partner does want to have sex with someone else or fall in love with someone else, whatever really pushes my buttons, what will we do next? Because I find that people really, what they want is to be able to trust themselves, trust their partner, and trust the process that they are in to hold the bumps, the bruises, the experiments that don't quite go right. So that's what I create is a process that they can trust over time. I think that's a great point. And I think it's a good time to introduce a few words that listeners might not have heard of. Uh, Limerence is a thing, Mm -hmm. which is the sort of feel good hormones around meeting someone new. And there's just like that spark and you get along really well and you're vibing and you find them so hot and it's all just really new and um, new relationship energy. NRE is another term. I, I would say there's a lot of overlap between those, but I know couples, non-monogamous couples over time and limerence doesn't last forever, but there, but it can be a funny, definition, right. But it can be a funny, fun. It can be a funny, fun experience when you're witnessing your partner in limerence experiencing NRE. If you've been through it a few times, you're like, oh, that's cute. Like they're in that, they're in that phase. And it doesn't feel like a huge existential threat to your relationship. It's like kind of enjoyable. Cause you're like, oh, they're cute. Look, they're dressing up. Like it doesn't mean they don't love me. It's more like, oh, there's a, they're in a phase. This is a thing that's happening. And I think for a lot of people, yeah, that can feel really threatening. Like, oh my God, they must like the other person better. They don't dress up for me like that anymore. You know, I haven't seen them wear perfume, you know, or whatever the equivalent is. And so I think it's so helpful what you do as a guide to kind of help people, yeah, trust the process that it doesn't need to mean your relationship is ending and it doesn't need to mean that you pick a fight. You know, there are ways to yeah, express feelings because what I've noticed about polyamory and ethical non-monogamy that's working is that the participants have a high level of skill around sharing their honest truth and their feelings like, okay, you know what? I'm noticing some jealousy coming up. You know, it's happening. It's doing that thing where like, I get really flushed and and the other person attends to them. And so there's, so you, you get, you get better at communicating in actuality and there's more depth and there's more holding and there's more grounding in the relationship overall. If, if it's done well, (laughs) if there are unconscious people that don't know how to do that or aren't interested in learning how to do that, usually it falls apart. But what I've seen is that when it is done well, you actually become more facile. You become more adept at relating with each other and, and learning. Like I said, you know, the, the couple that figured out their aftercare, it was like, oh, when you come home, like I need us to just hold each other. Mm-hmm. It's actually really important. Like, I don't want to hear about the date. It's too much for me, right? I just want to hold, I just want to feel like you're still here. We're still doing this. Like, 
And they learned that because before they did that, they had big fights. (laughs) They learned how to do it. And so your point about trusting the process is a great one of we're on a learning curve. We're actually going to learn how to do this. And sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable, but then we're going to get through it if we're both committed to being honest and vulnerable and working on it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm glad that you introduced the terms. And I just want to say that. So my primary academic research is jealousy. Like that's what I research. I research jealousy in the polyamorous container and in the monogamous container. So I do interpretative phenomenological analysis on the lived experience of jealousy. So what you just said is a great example um, coming out of my research. I would say the people who had practiced non-monogamy for a while, the one thing they had in common was that they they understood that jealousy was normal and that they that if they talked about it as a normal thing in times when it wasn't so overwhelming that they stood a better chance of managing the effects and impacts of jealousy and potentially doing my favorite thing turning jealousy into an opportunity for deeper intimacy my monogamous participants on the other hand um haven't had that exposure So they may understand that jealousy is normal and that's great, but they don't have the places to talk about it. It's generally not. We expect monogamy to protect us from jealousy and it doesn't. We know that. Ask anybody like just straight up. You ever felt jealous? I don't know anybody who's really genuinely been out there in the world for a while and not had a brush with it. So. The skill building around jealousy is around exactly what you're talking about, understanding that what we see happening in our relationship, it we give it meaning. We're the ones that are assigning it meaning, which means I need to practice tools and skills that will help me self-regulate. I need to ask for the co-regulation that I need. And I'm going to need to customize this sometimes relationship to relationship. I might have one partner that I am like totally cool with my, my husband could come home. He could hop right in bed with me. Awesome. That's great. Let's go. In fact, bring it on. I love it. Then I have other partners where perhaps I'm like, nope, I'm going to need you to shower, go do some journaling. I want you to like, get that all out on your own. I I'm not going to hold that for you. That's yours. And then come to me and I might have a list of requests. Cool. If I understand that that's how we work with the very normal feelings like jealousy, jealousy is not the only one that's going to come up, then yeah, good open relationship skills are just good relationship skills. I like that. Good open relationship skills are just relationship skills. That feels very true. And it does feel like there's more... um, there's more consciousness, there's more awareness, there's more uh, emotional dialogue skills needed to make this kind of thing work. And so there's a lot of potential for growth. There's actually yes. a lot of potential, a lot of potential for expansion and growth if you're doing it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's it. That's my work. So my overlap, my whole purpose in this work is that I'm a Jungian psychologist, which means I trained in the processes of individuation. So. I find that non-monogamy or just the process of opening, I want to be clear, the process of opening, which does not mean that you have any particular outcome, but the process of exploring it is for some people a huge opportunity to get on or continue on their individuation journey. 
So I actually marry those two things. I'm like, here we go. Everything that comes up here, it's not just about your relationship. Your relationship becomes this container in which your individual work is happening. And it's going to be different from your partner's work. And every time we notice that, we're actually deeper into the psychological stuff that becomes the prima materia of our alchemical journey. It's so exciting. And some people hear me talk about that and they're like, whoa, could uh, I thought, can uh, you know what? Maybe no. And other people are like, yes, bring it on. Let's do this. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe no. Um, I think it would be helpful to for you to explain a little bit about what you mean by individuation. That's probably going to be a new term for some folks. So what what does that mean developmentally and then especially in romantic relationships? Yeah. So I like to use this term very, very clearly. So thank you for giving me a chance to explain it. Individuation means becoming the most you version of you possible over the course of time. There is no individuated. You will always be at best individuating. So we're in a process and it is about remembering all the parts of you that you were either conditioned out to cut off, you were told to remove from yourself, you were asked to not have all that stuff you cut away, and removing all the aspects of yourself that were never you and were just things that you put on because you were either taught to or it just feels like it's required or it's the right thing to do or it fits and it makes life easy, but it's not authentic. So it's really a journey towards your most authentic, differentiated self, capital S self. So when you're a baby, you're a whole self. You are, but you're undifferentiated. So this is the lifelong journey toward that differentiated, self-aware self. And as an example, you know, one thing I've noticed for me is um, people pleasing. And I think that's been true for many, many, many of my clients. and. So I think an example, a concrete example of this is um, sometimes I will be afraid someone will be mad at me. So I'll make a choice or say something that isn't really true. And I'm just saying it because I don't want them to be mad at me. That's not an authentic move. (laughs) That's a, that's a, that's a trauma move essentially. And so I think that, you know, for example, give you an example. Uh, One of my clients was in a relationship and They'd been spending a lot of time together and she texted him, Hey, can you hang out Friday? Or do you want to hang out Friday? And it was really hard, but because of all the work that we'd done, he was able to say, it's really hard for me to say no to this because I like spending time with you. And the truth is I need a night to myself to kind of rejuvenate. That was a totally new behavior. So before then he would have said yes, because he didn't want her to be mad at him. And I think that's much the same as my pattern of, I have in the past often said yes to things that I wasn't really a yes to because I was so afraid of losing the love or the favor of that person. So is that, for example, an an aspect of individuation that if I'm, as I'm individuating, I'm more able to say no when I mean it without overwhelming fear and anxiety that that will mean that I'll be abandoned. Yes. Yeah. A mistake that happens is frequently people understand individuation as an intellectual exercise. It's not. It's an embodied experience. And so all of your trauma responses, your fight, your flight, your fight, your fawn, what you just named fawning, all of them are things that you will come to terms with during your increased self-awareness. And then 
it's worth pointing out that you may notice that in some couples, we have the same problem. We may be like, well, if I'm a people pleaser and you're a people pleaser, how come nobody's pleased? Like, what, what's the deal with that? Because that happens a lot in my in my office. And what I what I work with there is, yeah, because you're both trying to do something that is not actually about what the other person wants. It's about not having somebody be angry with you or about convincing them to give you love that they haven't actually offered or about garnering favor, right? And this isn't, of course, that can feel like manipulation from the other side. So there are always two sides, like a trauma response can absolutely be answered with a trauma response. And this is where we get into that dance of codependency where now, yeah, have we decided that what we're going to do is, is dance our whole relationship inside of these unhelpful patterns, or are we going to take a risk like your client did and do something that feels scary? And I'm hearing that you set them up for success by walking them through a process where they would understand that they could have a conversation about the discomfort that they were going to, that they were feeling right now. Because if you introduce that now, I'm guessing that the response from his partner was, wow, thank you for telling me that. I'm sure that was really hard for you. And wow, look at us growing. Yay us, right? So now we get to celebrate our partner's growth. And the thing that was going to be decimating us is now providing us with sustenance. Yes. And it's one of those things where I think that the, (laughs) how you say it, right, is, is helpful. Meaning if you start out with, it's really hard for me to say no to you, or I, I enjoy spending time with you. And then you're sort of laying the groundwork for the no, and I need some time to myself. And it's a little scary for me to tell you that. You're, you're kind of including the whole picture instead of just, no, I need a night off, which I think we, learning how to say these things is helpful. And then also essentially what we're talking about is boundaries. And one of the things that I talk about with my clients a lot is when you set a boundary, the advantage of setting it is a setting the boundary itself, but also you get to see the other person's response. So if they have a wild and crazy out of control big response that's not handled well, that's where you really want to know that. Like that's yeah. you really want to know versus someone's response. That's like, Oh, that makes sense. We've spent a lot of time together. Yes. Or even if they say like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. It's a little disappointing to hear, but I support you in getting your needs met. That's fine too. Like they get to have their reaction right. as long as they own it instead of, you know, table flip, I can't believe this. You're being so selfish. I can't believe or it. avoidance. Right. It, you know, it's like, well, that you really want to know that though. Like you right. want to know if your dating partner is, is going to respond that way to you setting a boundary. Like that's it. You win either way, either you set the boundary and it's respected. You win, or you set the boundary and it's not. And you get information about whether you want to keep relating with this person. So it's, it's win-win. I'm wondering in this you know, situation with the strategic opening. Um, can you walk us through a little bit of, so the, the couple has uh, reached consent, reached enthusiastic informed consent, and they're on their, their path. What, what happens next? Like what happens do you find often when 
someone's going on their first date or, you know, what, what's the sort of next phase? Because I imagine that brings up different things in the individuation conversation. Yeah. So I think actually it's important to note that enthusiastic informed consent is the first pillar, but it is way before we start dating that we have so many other things to get to before we get to dating apps or going out with anybody. So it's really, I teach these as pillars. Like we need to put these pillars in place before we go forward. But let's just say, imagine we've got two people. They've been partnered. They got enthusiastic consent. They moved through the other pillars that are really just foundational, solid relationships. So they're feeling solid and able to be part of this process. And now they're they're ready for fun. Some of the first steps are about simply inserting things that were not present in a conventional, um, less than conscious monogamy. Things like, how do we talk about consent in a sensual or sexual world? How do I, how do I share STI results? How do I negotiate? How do I even do this? How do I date? So there's so much stuff to learn there. And often what we find is that these two people really have a lot to learn about each other as they date. So the relationship agreement process becomes a big learning about who you're married to and how very different they are. So for instance, um, one person may be very, very comfortable hopping on any dating site, putting up their profile, saying clearly on it that they're ethically non-monogamous, but they don't really care like if, if they're dating other people who might be looking for monogamy, but are okay with dating. While another partner might be like, whoa, that is way scary to me. Like that is, you just terrified me. Cause now that other person becomes a perceived interrupter. Like now they're single, they're looking for a partner. They're looking for that thing that we were just doing that thing where we were each other's chosen one. I see. Yes. Right. And so just a little difference like that, like that's such, that's so tiny because we could be making our OkCupid profiles at the same time and just click one different button saying, I'm open to people who clicked monogamy. And all of a sudden we are off to the races with everybody's trauma response acting up and actually some really deep philosophical conversations. Why are we doing this? Is it my job to uphold other people's monogamy? How much how much do, do I need to care about that? What wait, what are we actually doing? And so I frequently ask people to go through this in that experimental zone precisely so that we don't try to start building whole relationships before we've even like recognized how many questions there are. Because as soon as you bring another person into a, a, a relationship with you, I'm not talking about a first date. I'm talking about like, hey, we're seeing each other now and we take each other into account when we make our calendars. Well, now you've got another person and that is a whole person who needs to be accounted for. So in that very early stage, when people typically are worried about limerence, I'm more concerned with, are you experimenting and understanding that you're still in that experimental zone and just allowing yourself to feel into this and then have those resilience conversations and come to an agreement through exploration rather than through just your intellect, because people often write their relationship agreements through what they think they will or think they should feel. 
not the same thing as what you will. Yeah. So let's talk about what you mean by relationship agreements. I think that's another thing people won't be familiar with. And do you walk through, you know, do you have a checklist that you help couples with? How do you, how do you handle relationship agreements? Yeah, I have a, I have a pretty extensive process that we, we work through that has to do with understanding your, your values. What are your core relationship values? And then building If you're going to do this as a couple, like our intention is to stay coupled, which is very different than if we are intending to uncouple and remain in each other's spheres, right? We're intending to be, let's say, in a hierarchical relationship where we are each other's primary person, um, which is a perfectly valid choice. You just need to be able to communicate it. Um, If we're doing that, then I want to walk through a process where we identify our values, identify our guiding stars. What are the guiding principles of our relationship agreement? Things like, like an example would be, we always use safer sex practices. Safer sex practices look like this in action, right? But it doesn't say that we never go out on Tuesdays, right? It So the difference there being a guiding principle is about like these big, important principles that allow you to make decisions in the moment based on the principle, rather than having to go text your partner and be like, does this fit in the rules? The guiding principles is such an important part of starting to be able to act independently, which is really, really important. So when you're making a relationship agreement, you're going to go through stages where you're figuring out your values. You are starting to identify what your guiding principles are. You're going to give each other time to discover these on your own and then come together and create them. And then then you'll talk about how do these look in action? What are some examples of how these will look in action so that you can do those thought experiments? Like, well, how would how would it work if we are in a shared space and I've said, I don't want you to play alone, but there's say a separate play space where I wouldn't be able to see you. Like how would that play out with our value of we play together? Is it still playing together if we're at the same party or is it not? Like you see the levels there and how we really start to create that decision-making process for each person so that they can act independently and still come back to that resilient togetherness. And of course, all good relationship agreements need to have aftercare plans in them and and great big deal breakers too. We need to know what the deal breakers are and we need to know what the action is that happens if the deal breakers get hit before everybody's doing this stuff. Can you say a little bit more about the values part, you know, valuing what are, what are ones that you find are common or how do you guide people through that that part and yeah. Yeah. So a really common one is, are we doing hierarchy? Are we doing primary relationship? Right. That's the most common one. And if we are, okay, how are we, what's the language we're going to use around that? Because having a hierarchy saying to every new person you meet, this is my special person, their rules, um, their guidance, their, their needs, their wants, like I'm always going to be paying attention to them. Well, you need to be able to say that to all the new people you're interacting with. And then you need to be able to actually put that into practice because uh, this is where it gets sticky. And this is maybe one of the most challenging pieces. Frequently, people will say, okay, so this is my primary partner. So their needs come before all of yours. And that's bullshit. 
excuse my language, but it does not work because one day you could be in a car accident and your partner that you're on a date with needs to go to the hospital. Their needs outweigh your partner needing you to come home to tuck the kids into bed. Everybody knows that. We know that. And yet I have found myself in that very situation where a partner was so frightened of veering from the hard and fast rule that was set that he be home to tuck the kids into bed, that he literally did not feel he could take me to the hospital because I had a broken arm. This is, I'm not making this up. This is my life. And so I lived this. And so I'm very balanced about, yes, I help couples figure out how to strategically open up. And I really care about how everybody else gets treated because this can be literally life and death at times. And this is also how we start to awaken to humanity. We're all in relationship to each other. And so when I finally had a conversation with my metamor, that's my partner's partner, about how it felt to know that she didn't want him to take me to the hospital, we had some big growth then in our relationship, which wasn't, I didn't even know we were struggling, but ooh, turned out we had some stuff to talk about. This is where it gets really messy. And it's important to take our time and know that rupture is going to happen. So we got to have the skills to repair the rupture. I was just going to say, I think that's one of the, the, um, other fallacies of monogamy will protect me from jealousy. Monogamy will also protect me from rupture, meaning fighting or uh, big feeling betrayed, the feeling of the betrayal. And I, I would imagine, I think it was such a great example that you gave of we, we play together. Like that's so one of our values, I don't know if it count as value, but one of our agreements is we play together. Mm -hmm. We're at the play party my partner's over in the hot tub, having a great time talking to people. I meet someone, they invite me into the other room. And now I'm, I'm sort of like, Oh, I don't know. Like we are at the same party. Exactly. Like what you said. So I make the judgment call. This is fine. This is fine. Right. We're at the same party. So I go in the other room, we're making out my partner comes and finds me and has feelings about it. Yeah. And now we're in the position of I feel like I was within the bounds of our agreement. He feels like I wasn't. He he's he's experiencing the betrayal. He's experiencing the feeling of betrayal and I'm experiencing the feeling of shame. Like, oh shit, I guess I did something wrong. Also, I feel defensive, blah 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 blah. We have to be able to come together and repair and that can bring us closer together. It can also devolve, right? Mm -hmm. Both of those are possible. But I do think that there's, it's such an important thing to name that rupture happens in monogamy too. It's yeah. not that it doesn't. And, and frankly, most of us are not taught how to repair at all. So what we try to, our very best to do is just never trigger each other. <laughs> like, right. Well, maybe if I just walk on eggshells for the rest of my life, we'll just never have to do that thing mm -hmm. instead of, oh, this is probably going to happen. There, no matter how rock solid our agreements are, we're probably going to get hurt sometimes. Right. And we can trust that we can come together after that. That's the difference is, do we trust that we can actually do that? And so I'm, I'm so curious to hear from you. Do you feel like the couples that come to you, 
like are really solid in repair before, or do you think that they learn a lot more during this process? I think that it enters their embodied space a lot more (laughs) during this process. It depends a lot on things. One lens we could look at this through is um, the attachment theory lens. Sometimes I have couples come to me and both of their um, routes to safety are to make everything nice, make everything pretty, not fight. If both of them use that strategy, then they probably believe that they have great rupture and repair skills. And yeah, if I were Southern, I'd probably say, bless your heart, right? Like (laughs) I, they don't, they just haven't had the opportunity to practice. And usually they came from households where either there was such intense out of control anger that they shut that all down or from a housework, they never had healthy fighting. So they don't know anything. It's completely normal. It's natural. I get it. And frequently they are the most, I'm just going to use the word diluted about their skill level. They are okay. I'm going to get really, really honest here. Often one or more of them has already trained in the helping professions. So they know how to help other people do it. But at home, they don't have the embodied experience. And this is rough. This is rough. And I see the train coming. Sometimes I can help them understand that that rupture and repair skill is going to require more messiness than they're used to. And that's when we get the success. If they get comfortable with the fact that it's going to be messy, it's not going to feel right, great big air quotes, right to them, and that they're going to have to try stuff that they thought meant you had a bad relationship. They're going to have to try things like expressing their feeling fully in front of their partner, in front of their counselor. They are going to have to try things like actually stating their need when they wish that their partner would read their mind. They're going to have to try these things that sound scary. So this is just one scenario. There are others, but I think the attachment theory lens helps me sort of ground into uh, where are these two people coming from? Let me take their temperature a little bit because frequently it's actually the more um, hmm, dynamic couples who actually have more skill at this, but they need to refine it a lot because it may be borderline. I don't want to say violent, but like right on the edge of like, wow, there's a lot of activity going on when rupture happens. And so they know that they stop short of abuse, but they're like, um, they don't quite want to tell me exactly how rough it gets for, for their insides. And so we have to work on, okay, how are we going to do this in a way that's not going to now spiral? Because now we're talking about things that the culture tells you make you righteously angry. Because once righteous anger enters this, That informed, enthusiastic consent is somehow nowhere to be found. I already did consent to this. Wait, this is what I signed up for. Yeah, you did. I am still shocked by the fact that I signed up for this. And it's the best part of my life. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think it's a good example of the, you know, we had an agreement, we play together. I'm in another room playing with someone else. He finds me and he feels betrayed. And then now where do we go from there? Right. It's, it's like, can we get to a place where I can hold space for his betrayal or sorry, his feeling betrayed feeling? Yeah. His feeling betrayed. And, and am I also able to kind of 
hold myself in my shame spiral or whatever's going on for me, you know, and, and are we able to get to a place where we are like, Oh, we, what happened is that we need to refine our agreements. Yeah. And you need psychological first aid because in that moment we need a quick way to address the need. So we talk about aftercare. Great. Aftercare is what we do after the thing has happened. And often after there's then been either a fight or a withdrawal, but what do we do if we actually both notice like, okay, we're both feeling things that we don't want to feel and we're at a play party. Do we actually want to end the evening? Can we call yellow flag? Can we just say like, okay, this didn't go. How, what's our process? What do we do? What's the move now to get back on the same page? So I have people like plan this out. What's the move? I have them write it down on a card and put it in their play bag. I'm like, go get the card. Do exactly what you planned. And is that, for example, I'm I'm curious, what is it like, we're going to do a a 20 second hug or we're going to, is it physiological? I always start with physiological um, and I train my clients to use neurosomatic intelligence drills. So we, they specifically will have their own rescue drills that they'll do and they'll have co-regulation drills. So it's stuff that they can do in under five minutes, usually under two minutes, really, and then reassess. So they assess where they're at. They're like, oh. We got to do the thing. And if nothing else, they can go get the card and say, Jolie told us this was the thing. We're going to do it so that we don't have to tell her we didn't do the thing. So there's that. This is where accountability is nice. <laughs> they go get the card and they they turn to their body's wisdom and they, they bring their body back into a, at least a little bit closer to homeostasis. Then they turn toward each other. Yeah, usually it is. It's the 20 to 60 second hug. Get an oxytocin release because oxytocin is one of the ways that we circumvent jealousy. And so then from there, what their moves out, that might be about restating their their affirmations. Um, A common one that I use is, I choose you. I choose me. Let's go do this together because this is fun. And we just recenter that way. And from there, you say those things, you let your vocal cords hold that vibration. And now, oh, you know what? This is fun. Uh, let's go do this. <laughs> I was having a really good time in the hot tub. Uh, so maybe we yeah, did this or, you know, I think it's such a great, it, what I'm appreciating about the way that you describe this is, this is part of why it's so important to have guides, to have mentors, to have people that have walked a path before us that can help because prepping the, the prep beforehand, the, the knowledge that this is, it's very likely that the two of you will go to a play party and someone will get triggered. Look, I'm just going to tell you, it's so likely I've worked with a lot of people. Let me just tell you. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about your plan, your safety plan ahead of time, instead of we're going to go and it's going to be great. You know, it's like, yeah, it is going to be great. It's also probably going to be triggering for one of both of you at some point, even if it's not your first party. So it's just reminding me of how important it is for all of us to just get the right help, get the right mentors, get the right resources for people who have a little more wisdom than we do. Right. Just, we just have more experience. And if I could go back to 2009, Jolie, I would find her someone. I tried. It was hard. We've come a long way since then. You do not have to do this alone. 
you do not. And it doesn't even have to be. Let's let I just want to circle back a little bit to creative monogamy. I have people put these same practices into effect if they're going to say, go to a strip club together. That is a very gentle activity for a lot of people. They're like, okay, I can do that. It still might be triggering. So those same tools work. Or if they're going to, I have had people so sensitive that we even put these same tools into place if they're going to go to a, say, a workplace environment, right, where one might feel left out. It's not even about anything physical. It's professional, but there might be hurt feelings. These same tools, they work across the board. So again, like the work, even if people come to me and many people, so my program is is a year long. We have, you have to go for at least a year and you might walk all the way through all of this and come back around and decide, you know what? We're choosing monogamy and this is how our monogamy is going to look. It's going to be very clear. But now they have all these skills. It's a win. That is definitely a win. Yeah. So yeah, as we're sort of starting to wrap up here and wondering if you can say a little bit more about creative monogamy uh, and what it might look like if a couple isn't comfortable with full sex on either side. They're like, we know we don't want that. We don't want to STIs really scare us. We don't really want, you know, all of that. But what else are people doing? What are some like menu options that people (laughs) Okay. So first there's all the sensuality. So let's just acknowledge that the most powerful question in my whole toolkit for everyone is go have a conversation with your partner about what is sex? How do you know when it's started? How do you know when it's finished? And I promise you, your sex life can be revolutionized just from that. So first off, let's get clear. When somebody says, I'm not comfortable with them having sex, we got to have a talk because... There is no such thing as a definition of sex. I have taught in rooms of a thousand sex educators and therapists. We do not have two definitions that match. So beyond that, there is a range of sensual possibilities. Some of those might be containers, environments like a Tantra weekend or um, a a strip club, just going to a strip club where you feel like good about how the dancers are treated. It could be that you simply put yourself in situations where you're hanging out with single people. And that just changes the energy because married couples tend to hang out with all married couples, switch that up. And all of a sudden, oh, well, new energy. That's very different. It doesn't have to be about sex, but it also might be about a whole bunch of other places that we often don't consider, but are definitely part of understanding creative monogamy. There are places like um, your your finances, your co-parenting, your friendships, your hobbies, your avocation, your businesses. Where are you expansive and where are you exclusive in all of these domains? And if you start to understand that, now you realize that in fact, the skills of non-monogamy or creative monogamy are just the skills of creating a life that really lets you do what you want. Let's say, for instance, um, I have been very involved in the raising of my friend's children. Not everybody's comfortable with that. We had to actually negotiate about that. Um, I've had people be business partners who are not, you know, they're not my partners, but now our finances are now connected. Oh, okay. That's pretty intense. I have owned property with people I'm not married to, right? So there are so many ways. I definitely co-parent with people I'm not married to. So many ways that we might be exploring 
what the edges of monogamy are that are outside of that Disney version. So yeah, it's yes, there's the yummy, juicy, sexy part. And there's all the rest of this. So in terms of creative monogamy, are there couples whose agreements are, you know, what one thing that occurred to me, for example, was I was in a long distance relationship and I brought it up with my partner of, I really miss physical touch when you're not around. So not even sex necessarily, but just holding, would you be comfortable with me having a, a cuddle buddy, someone that I get, I just cuddle with, like I miss feeling held. And he said, yes, that would be fine. And, you know, I guess I'm wondering what are some other common ways that if, if you can answer that, that creative monogamy can be expressed within a couple that isn't, we have full sex solo dates with other people. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's just one, it really is just one version. And, um, you know, asexual people do polyamory too. So (laughs) obviously it doesn't have to include that. Um, for one thing, it might be that only one of you feels comfortable having sex with other people and the other doesn't, and the other wants a different set of things. So it might be that there is a significant asymmetry there. And that's where the work is, is realizing we don't want the same things and that's fine. It could be about that cuddle buddy. Oh oh my gosh. Yes. And let us increase that to be, how do I know the difference between a friend and a romantic partner? Now, what if I like to be romantic with my friends? I Romantic friendship is my favorite thing in the whole world. I love it so much, but it breaks the rules of both romance and friendship. So there's a lot to negotiate there. And when I say romantic friendship, let me get really specific. Like, can I bring flowers to my friend? Can I take them on a, on a dinner date? Can I take them away for the weekend? I've done all of these things with friends. And when I say, can I do these? A lot of people are like, well, of course, sure. I mean, like everybody, like, of course you have girlfriends and you go out and you, you know, split the check and whatever. I'm like, no, what if I want to buy her dinner? Wait, um, by the way, I'm queer. Does that change your mind? Cause I'm queer and my husband's queer. So that usually really messes with the picture. Like, does he get to have his guy friends? What do they get to do? Oh, that's a good question. We, we really have to get into the granularity of what is sexual? What is sensual? What is friendship? And what do we, what boundaries help us understand that we feel safe and secure? And this is where it gets tricky. Sometimes what feels like a good boundary for us doesn't for our partner. And sometimes the work is in sitting with that discomfort and just being with it because I want to be able to hold friends, hold hands with my best friend and my partner's like that makes me uncomfortable and i'm like okay but this is a this is a big deal for me can you sit with that discomfort and there's the question can i sit with that discomfort i don't know and this is why i say time is an ingredient because you need to allow stuff to happen new ideas to awaken new experiences to be on the table. Because if I don't have a friend who wants to hold my hand, then this isn't a problem. But once I do, we might need to deal with it. Time is an ingredient. That's a great point. And um, I think as we're winding down, I'm curious if, if there is a couple or someone that's in a couple that's interested in creative monogamy or this kind of thing, 
Do you recommend books like Polysecure to start of just like, hey, to dip your toe in the water, listen to this this podcast that you and I just did, read this book, or do you recommend like, yeah, start working with a coach right away? What do you recommend? So I think it's a, it's a, it's a question of um, urgency. It's always a question of urgency. There are one of two ways that I see people go when this question enters their relationship. Either they are jump into the deep end of the swimming pool and realize that there's no water in it and it's concrete. Or they are the let's talk about it for years. So <laughs> neither of these is actually a really productive outcome because you're alive now. We do not want to kill you but we also don't want to just wear you down forever. Um, so it's it's a both and for me. I strongly recommend that people put themselves in a situation where they will feel supported and held as they go through this process because I guarantee you, I have a curriculum. The reason it is not a course is because the one thing I can guarantee you is if I handed you that curriculum, you would choose the wrong place to start. Of course you would. You would choose a place that feels edgy, actually safe, secretly, secretly safe. We all do this to ourselves. I do it too, all the time. So instead, I walk people through an actual process. Here are the milestones we want to hit. And then additionally, I ask them to set their own milestones because they're on their own journey to their own outcome. So they have to set their own milestones. And yes. Even if they're going for creative monogamy and they have elected to have one particular thing be off the table, let's say it's, it is generally either sexual exclusivity or emotional exclusivity. It's almost always one of those two things. If that's the case, I strongly encourage that they read Polysecure, Open Deeply. Oh, so Polysecure by Jessica Fern, Open Deeply by Kate Laurie, <laughs> um, Open Monogamy by Tammy Nelson. I think that these are good ways to start. Oh, and actually open relationships by Dr. Liz Powell. Yeah, I would add that. Um, these books provide a basic understanding of the, the words they're going to hear if they start going into Facebook groups and just seeing like all oh, these people talking about stuff. And it starts opening the imagination. The number one tool you have in your toolkit is your imagination. What I do for you is help you hold the imagination open so that you can patiently see whether you can get your body and mind and soul all on the same page. So it's not that the books are designed to teach you like this is the way to go. They just start to crack stuff open so that you'll have more advanced questions so that you'll start to know where you're going to get hurt, where this is not feeling right, because that's where we start to go. Okay, there's where the work is. I can give a, a concrete example. I had somebody in my office this week who, when they saw the book list, freaked out, totally freaked out. They were on board. They were like, we're doing this work. We are in the group. Let's go. And then they freaked out because they saw the book list and they're like, all of those books say I have to have sex. So I don't think you read those books quite carefully. Let's take this step by step. I know the people who wrote these books. I have spoken with them. I've been at conferences with them. I've interviewed them. They know it's not all about sex, but they do know that sex is a question we're going to have to ask. And sex will push you to stretch your imagination about what exactly it is we're talking about here. You get to set your own boundaries. And if sexual exclusivity is the boundary, 
and your partner is good with that, this process can still help you figure out where you're going to be exclusive and where you're going to be expansive. And lo and behold, it turned out that, um, yeah, his attachment history was really, really rough. And there's some deep work to be done. And that might need to be individual work first. And that's fine because just identifying that is a huge win, huge win for his relationship as well as for him. That's a really good point. I I appreciate that emphasis on foundational work before this situation, because I think people are coming with all different levels of development and depending on how much personal growth work you've done, attachment work you've done, people are at different points in that journey. And there does need to be a certain threshold of, of safety if it's got a shot at exactly. exceeding. Yeah. So yes. don't worry about that. I will put those uh, books in the show notes. If you were trying to scribble them down, we'll, we'll do that. Um, and then, yeah. How can people find you if they're interested in your work? And um, what are you up to? Yeah. So, you know, the thing that I am loving right now is my work with people who are doing exactly this. They're trying to discover. So I actually made a quiz out of my doctoral research. Um, it's You can find it at joliquiz.com, J-O-L-I-Q-U-I-Z.com. And it's, a, it's just a 10-question quiz, but I designed it to help you identify where are you on the spectrum from, wow, we need a lot of foundation all the way over to hell yeah yeah we're ready let's let's go i'm i'm in this let's find out how we do it now and from there you'll get an invitation to come and learn about those five pillars of opening well without burning everything down and that's a free class that i offer so that people can figure out how this might go for them and from there i do have a group container where people can join me to go through that year long process it's called the year of opening because i like to remind everyone Yes, this is going to take time, Um, but it's a small group. I limit the seats to eight, um, and that allows us to really go deep and be in a cohort where they get to know each other and know that they're not alone. They're not alone and it's safe. So there's four couples. Well, what happens is it actually winds up being a mix of couples, um, individuals who are in between relationships, and they're like, we need to learn how to do this well before we go out and do that. Um, so it actually is really interesting to see who shows up, but the cohorts form and then they get to bond together as they find out that, in fact, we all have the same struggles just to different degrees. And when they get to recognize their stuff out there in these mirrors. So I act as a guide. My anchor partner actually joins me in these rooms so that there's also a, a socialized masculine perspective there. Um, and it's amazing. And I love it. I do private work, but honestly, the group work is it's amazing. Oh, that's lovely. I'll also drop that site in the show notes. Thank you so much. This was enlightening and informative and inspirational. Thank you so much for having me. You asked amazing questions. (laughs) Thank you. Hey guys, did you know I teach a course exactly about sex? It's called Please Her in Bed, and it's based on all of my sex research asking women What do the men who are best in bed do? I asked over a thousand women, 1,067 to be precise, and then I put together this course. Here are a few responses from men who've taken it. I almost immediately started seeing a woman shortly after the course. She is open and all over me. And we've had sex. Before the course, I hadn't had intercourse in about two years. 
And I found that a couple of men have said this where they've taken the course and then they've started having sex with a woman. And I think it's because their confidence levels went up because they finally felt like they actually knew what they were doing. Here's another man who was married when he started taking it. I took the course hoping to establish a closer relationship with my wife of over 20 years. Our sex life was always vanilla, but lately it had dwindled to less than once a month and not particularly satisfying for either of us. Since the course, however, our sex life has improved considerably. Now I feel way more confident about my ability to connect with my wife and make the experience satisfying for both of us. I've always loved her, but feel like I'm falling in love with her again after 25 years. If you're interested in hearing more, go to pleaseherinbed.com and the course is listed for $97, but if you're a podcast listener and you use code DEARMEN, that's all one word, DEARMEN, you can get it for 69